It says in Psalm 63, 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In Christ alone we put our trust. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, turn through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, amen, I all in all, here in the love of Christ. I stand in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, His gift of love and righteousness, sworn by the ones He came to save. Sing it out. Till on that cross as Jesus died, ground his body lay light of the world by darkness slain then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since curse has lost its grip on me for out no guilt no guilt in life no fear in death this is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final prayer Jesus commands my destiny no power of hell no scheme of man can never cause me from What a song. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we put all of our trust in you this morning. When we're in the valleys, when we're in the storms, when things aren't going our way, we know that you are right there beside us. You are the good shepherd. You are the bread of life. Lord, we pray that everything that we have is yours. All our gifts, all our talents, our position in life, Lord, at our job, family, everything belongs to you. 
Lord, we, as we transition to uh, talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, persecution, Lord, let us know that you are also the one that is in the fire with us. Remind us of that continually, Lord. Let us stand boldly for the gospel in every situation that we would not bow to the things of this world, but to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Either way, I will bow to the things of this world. And I know I will never be alone. There is another in the fire standing next to me. There is another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding? What power set me free? There is a grave that holds nobody. Now that power lives in me. There is another in the fire.
today. You know, there's a lot of things in ministry that is a blessing. Well, really the whole, everything in ministry is a blessing. But what an amazing moment to be able to spend that with my dad today. You know, my sisters are here as well today. Um, They probably don't want me to let y'all know that they're here. Uh, But they're in the back, back there. Y'all could at least wave your hands or not. There you go. I just want y'all to know that they made a statement or somebody told me that they shared with them that they did a good job of raising me in the way of the Lord. <laughs> and so now, now we know uh, where... Uh, anyways. You know, as we listen to that song, there's another in the fire. You know, think about that for a moment. I don't know every situation in this room. But I can guarantee you with as many people that are here today that there are people in the fire today. There are people who are walking through painful and difficult times. But isn't that the beauty of the book of Daniel? That we see that God is in control and that God is with us. Even in the fire. Even in 
the journey, even in the difficult times. I love that uh, illustration where they were walking in the sand and all of a sudden uh, this person looked at Jesus and said, in the difficult times I only saw one set of footprints and Jesus said it was because I was carrying you. I don't know what you're walking through today. But the enemy wants you to think that you're in it alone. But let me tell you that Psalm 23 says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. And church, God has also called us as the body of Christ to be with one another while we walk through today's Babylon. And so may we see that in this story. Today, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to Daniel chapter 3. I was hoping to finish Daniel chapter 3, but... The more I studied and the more that I prepared, my heart just got so excited for this passage that we may only get to point one today, but we'll see what happens. Brother Randy told me beforehand, he said, none of us will believe the fact that you'd only stay on one point today. But we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to look, and if y'all don't mind, we're going to get a running start in verse 8. That's a lot of reading here, but... As I look to condense it, the Lord said, David, don't condense it, just speak my word. And so I'm going to read to you Daniel chapter 3, verse 8 to the end, verse 30. It says this, For this reason at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipes, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But however, but whoever, excuse me, does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave order to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true? That you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now if you are ready at this moment, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipes, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Church, hear what he said. Oftentimes we miss this. Hear what he said. And what God is there who can deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath 
and his facial expressions was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the, the furnace seven times more than it usually was heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other uh, clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flames of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men fell into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies. Of these men, nor was their hair on their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had they even the smell of fire even come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar responded, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their body so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their house reduced to a rubbish, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the providence of Babylon. What a powerful story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And we recognize today, Father, that we are desperately dependent upon you for all things. And so we ask right now that you, through your Holy Spirit of promise, would illuminate the pages today. That they may penetrate our heart. And Father, that we would walk out in obedience of your word. Lord, we love you and praise you, for it's in your name. Amen. As we look at this story, which is a real story, this is factual, this really happens. Sometimes when you hear the word story, you think of just a a tale or a myth. But this truly took place in the days of Babylon. It's probably about nine years after chapter 2, somewhere around there. And then we see this, and we talked about it last week, how uh, the... Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, for those who haven't been here, just know that that is their Jewish names. They were coming under attack because there were people who didn't like them in the position that they were in. And they come to the king because the king has ordered for everyone to bow. And they come to the king and they accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they do it in a craftily manner. You know, the scripture tells us in Genesis that the enemy uh, is crafty, doesn't it? 
It also tells us that he is uh, seeking to devour. And he's like a lion ready to, to pounce upon. Well, these men come to the king with, a, with, with, with craftiness. And they say to the king these things. They say, praise the king. They, they offer praise so that the king's kind of like, okay, I like this. They remind the king of his order. Then they share of what has taken place of the rebellion of the exiles. Ultimately, they're saying, hey, you're a great king. Let me remind you of what you spoke. And by the way, these men, they have disrespected you. They've disrespected you. And then the fourth thing that they do is they basically say, okay, now what are you going to do about it? King, what are you going to do about it? See, the king was furious in that moment that the Jewish men would put him to the test. He was furious in that moment that facing the fiery furnace, that they would still continue to stand for their God. As we look through in verse 13 and on, we're going to see this response of what takes place. The first thing that we see today, after they have been accused, they've come before the king, the king now gives them an opportunity. He says, well, if you're ready, then bow. But if not, the furnace is waiting. The first thing that we see here is the same thing that we see in Daniel chapter 1, and that is that they determined in their hearts. They determined in their hearts that they would follow God. Now let's just be very careful here to to make sure that we see this from a 50,000 foot approach. Some people would say in Daniel 1, well Daniel determined in his mind and in his heart that he would not eat of the king's food. Some people would say in chapter 3 that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had determined in their heart that they would not bow to an idol. Both of those are true, but we have to see it from the 50,000 foot approach. And see, the reality of it is, is that they didn't determine in their heart simply not to bow to an idol. They didn't determine in their heart simply not to eat of the king's food. They determined in their heart to follow God no matter the cost. And church, if you begin to put these into individual instances, then you could build legalism in your heart by saying, well, I've got to determine in my heart that I'm not going to cuss. And I've got to determine in my heart that I'm not going to lie. And I've got to determine in my heart that I'm not going to steal. No, what you need to do is determine in your heart today, will you follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or not? It's not that we go through the Bible and say, well, I'm going to determine in my heart about 50% of this. No, we fall on our face and we say we're going to give Jesus our whole life. When Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, when they did this, they were determined in their heart that they would follow God. All of who He is he gave, they gave their life to Yahweh to follow Him. And in doing so, they recognized what Exodus chapter 20 says. Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And it says this, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? You shall 
not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Church. Because they had determined in their heart to follow Yahweh, they recognize that they've given Yahweh their life. And so they're going to follow his precepts. They're going to follow his principles. They're going to follow his law. And it says not to worship idols. Here, now, they're confronted with this situation and they recognize that if, if they don't bow down and worship an idol made by King Nebuchadnezzar that they're going to face the fiery furnace. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that the word worship is used 11 times. You may not have recognized that. When I was reading, I was blown away just at how many times the word worship. Because the heart of the situation is will they worship God, Yahweh, or will they worship idols? Even in the threat of being thrown into the fiery furnace. And see, whenever I think of worship, I think of worth-ship. And what I mean by that is that true worship is putting uh, whatever you're worshiping in its rightful place according to its worth. It's putting something in its rightful place according to its worth. And so, what is God's worth? Infinite. He is infinitely worthy. So what should be above God in our lives? Nothing. Nothing should be above God in our lives because God is infinitely worth and worthy. The first mention of worship is in Genesis when Abraham and Isaac and they go out and, and he's going to sacrifice Isaac. And when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, uh, he says, hey, the, the boy and I, y'all stop here. The boy and I, we will go over there. We will worship and we shall return. First reference is in Genesis of worship. Abraham gives us an understanding. God does through Abraham gives us an understanding of what worship is. It's valuing God above everything. He says, hey, we're going to go and worship. I'm called to sacrifice Isaac. And I know that God, following him in his obedience, that he will take care of everything. And I know that we will come back and we will return because God has made a promise to Abraham. Church, we see here, that the confrontation that is taking in, in this place in Babylon is who will they worship? The culture quickly fell on their face and worshipped this golden image. Why? Well, I think it's three reasons why. One, some of them thought, wow, that statue is amazing. And because they had worshipped other gods and other idols and other statues and they saw how amazing the statue was, they fell on their face. The culture also in Babylon also worshipped possibly because of what I call the waterfall effect. And what I mean by that is, is have you ever seen uh, whenever somebody's voting on something and two or three people raise their hand and then four or five raise their hand, then they all kind of start raising their hand. And next thing you know, you have everybody raising their hand. It's the waterfall effect. They recognize, okay, there's like 20% are falling on their knees to, to worship this golden idol. Man, I, I'm going to be a part. I'm going to be a part. I'm going to be a part. 
For the, the young people in the room, uh, you may call it the fear of missing out, right? And so they join in. And some people simply were worshiping because that's what everybody was doing. But then there were others that were worshiping this golden idol out of fear of the consequences. If the idea of how beautiful the statue wasn't good enough, if your peers falling on their knees and worshiping before this idol wasn't enough, the fear and the thought of going to a fiery furnace was enough just to fall on your knees and bow. Church, what's interesting is that's exactly what we see today. Uh, Think about this for a moment. The idols that we see today may not look like a golden statue. But what happens in our day and time now is that people will worship these idols because they think that they're going, those idols are going to give them what they need instead of trusting God. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says that confidence in something, uh, idol worship is confidence in something other than God to deliver what we need. So we see this idol worship even playing out today where people say one thing is, hey, I'm, I, I love this idea and so I'm going to worship it. Some people say everybody else is doing it, so I'm going to worship it. And then some people are fearful of the consequences of our culture today that they worship all these other idols. Church, do we recognize that we live in Babylon? There are idols all around us. For some of us, it's the idol of our job. We're so focused on our job, we're going to go and do everything that we need to at our job, and we begin to say, God, you can work in around my job. For some of us, it may be the idol of the perfect American family. God, I'm going to drive my kids here, there, this place, that place. This is very important for them to be here and there and all these different things. And you can fit in around our schedule. But what I want everybody to see is how perfect our family is. For some of us, we worship money and success. God, right now, what I'm trying to do is just make sure that that I'm working hard enough to have enough and, and you can fit in around all of that. For some of us, we worship the idol of politics. Alistair Begg in his book, and I love this book. I have it up here somewhere. Brave by Faith. By Alistair Begg, he says this, and I wanna, I'm going to put it up on the screen and let you actually see it. The average American Christian finds it natural to worship the idol, idol of politics. We think and pray and speak as though if our guy wins, the kingdom wins. And if he loses, then it's hell. In other words, we treat our favorite for president or our political party as a god. American Christians are used to having a political home, and we have forgotten that this is Babylon. It may be a Republican Babylon. It may be a Democratic Babylon. Maybe a right-winged Babylon or a left-winged Babylon. But it is Babylon nonetheless. And we have forgotten that the kingdom of God is not of this world. Church, we must recognize here 
And we must determine in our hearts that we're going to worship God and God alone. As Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah were standing before, and they stayed standing even when all the music went forth because they had determined in their heart, have you determined in your heart that you will follow God no matter the cost? Have you determined in your heart that we must remove these idols in our life? Alistair Begg goes on to say this in his book. He says, and you'll see it up on the screen, it says, Our hearts naturally worship idols that exalt our agenda, our goals, our significance, our reputation. Christian faith does not mean that we are immune to idolatry, but it means that we have no excuse not to dismantle our idols. Church, you want to find idols in your life, I guarantee you they're going to line up with your agenda and your goals and your reputation of things. See, even John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Church, do we recognize, have we determined in our heart that we will follow God no matter what? Do we say that we're going to lay down any idols and we're going to allow God to be our sufficient, our protector, our provider, everything that we need? And even if we breathe our last breath, He will deliver us because we'll be with Him for all eternity. So we see here that the, the, the root of this situation is, is that they are calling them to worship idols, but yet they're following God, and, and they don't bow. And so the king gets really frustrated. Verse 13, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, in rage and anger, he said, are you really not going to bow? And then he makes this statement in verse 15 that when I read this, you know, I've, I've, I know this story from being a kid, right? Probably many of you know the story backwards and forwards. Sometimes I wish I could read this story without knowing the ending. We'd be sitting on the edge of our seat, right? Are they, are they going to stand? What are they going to do? But I've never seen this in verse 15. Where he said, And what God is there that will take you out of my hands? That will deliver you out of my hands? We see the pride of of the king. Now let me remind you in Daniel chapter 2 that when Jesus when God is giving Daniel this understanding in the dream, Daniel praises him and in his prayer he says, "You are the God who raises up kingdoms and tears them down." In this moment, for the king in his arrogance and his pride to say, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? He is saying that he is the one who establishes kingdoms and the one who tears them down. Little does he know that he's been deceived. The king's pride here begins to exalt himself over God. He thinks that he knows what's best. He thinks that he has uh, the best ideas in mind. He has a great direction and he has provision in his own power and strength. Church, how often do we find ourselves in that same situation? Yeah, you may not say and I may not say God or to a situation and what God is there to take you out of my hands. But how often do we act just like the king and saying. I got this. 
I got this. I got a better idea and understanding of how this is going to work, God. Hey, I, I know what's best. See, Psalm 139 tells us, and I love that chapter, I quote it probably every week, and it says that God knows us better than we know ourselves, that even before we speak, He knows the words that are going to come out of our mouth, church. God knows us better than ourselves, but how often do we think that we know what's best instead of falling on our face and crying out to God? How often do we think that we have the better direction of how to deal with something instead of falling on God's holy word and saying, God, you show me your perfect plan and your perfect way of how to deal with that. John Stott says this, and I, I, I love this. This, is, this was a deep quote that I had to spend some time, and I asked him to put it on the screen just so that you can see it. But he said this. He said, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, thinking that he can be God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Oh, but it keeps going. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Church, we must be careful not to walk in the pride and the arrogance as the king did. To think that we've got this under control. Look at all that I've done. I know what's best. We must fall on our face and allow God's holy word to wash over us and give us direction on how to walk every day in the circumstances and the situations of life. Psalm 119 says that God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How does a young man keep his way pure but, but being in God's word? The, Psalm 1 says that he who delights and meditates in God's word will be like a tree planted by the water and it will yield its fruit in season. Church, we must be in God's word and allow him to direct our path every day. It's not about, hey, I know what's best. No, it's that we're going to humble ourselves and say, God, you know what's best. Now lead me and guide me. That's the reason why I told you a year ago that when I became pastor at Luke 4.18, the first thing I had to do was lay down my opinions and my thoughts. Because I can't lead a congregation with my opinions and my thoughts. I can only lead by God's holy word and his direction. And church, that goes for all of us. The king, in his pride, said, I got this. Who can deliver you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of my hands? We'll go to point number three, and then I'll close here. But in point number three, they tell him who can deliver them out of his hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they trust in God. They trust in Yahweh. One of the most profound statements that so many of us have memorized and, and we speak it all the time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this, O king. And then they say this, 
our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver. Our God is able to deliver. Our trust is in Yahweh. See, think about this for a minute. The king was placing his trust in himself and told them, who can save you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ultimately are saying, we can't. We can't save ourselves. But we don't put our faith and our trust in ourselves. We put our faith in our God who is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. One way or another, they're going to be delivered. Either they're going to be delivered through the fire, or they're going to die in the fire, but God has a perfect plan, and they're going to be delivered and and out of Babylon. They're going to be with God for all eternity. But we see here this idea of where did the king put his trust in himself, and where did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put their trust? In Yahweh. Think about the valiant men. Down here in, in, in the passage, in verse 19 and on, when he got so furious, the king got so mad, and he said to his valiant warriors, like I think of valiant warriors and I think of like the, the Navy SEALs. Like I think of like the best warriors that we have. And he said, hey, I'm going to take my valiant warriors and I want you to go heat that fiery furnace up seven times. Now, I don't know how hot that is, but I can tell you it's hot. I don't like cold weather, but I don't want a furnace seven times hot. And so the valiant warriors heat this up, and and they tie them up, and they go to throw them in. And what happens to the valiant warriors? They get burned up by the fire. Church, is that not interesting? The valiant warriors who put their trust in the king, little K, put their trust in Nebuchadnezzar, Well, we're going to bow whenever he tells us to bow because he's the king. The valiant warriors who saw King Nebuchadnezzar as the one who provided for them, the one who took care of them, they're the ones in this moment who end up losing their life because their trust was in the wrong thing. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their trust is in Yahweh. And not only are they in the fire, but they're let loose in the fire, and there's another with them in the fire. And when they come out of the fire, praise God, it gives us all this understanding that their their trousers were okay, their hat was okay, I think it said, their caps, um, their hair didn't smell like burnt, or their body, they didn't have any burnt hairs. You, you just sit there and you just start thinking about that. If I was the one thrown in the fire, I'd just be thankful that I got out of the fire. But Daniel is recording all that has taken place. But just a few moments ago, the valiant warriors who had their trust in Nebuchadnezzar loses their life. But the ones who have their trust in Yahweh, they live. I'm reminded of the passage In the New Testament that says, He who wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. Church, there's three things that I see here about their trust in God. One, they're saying that we will bow only to God. I talked about this at the very beginning. We will worship God and God alone. 
We will not worship any other idols. They didn't determine in their heart individual things. They determined in their heart that they would follow and worship God alone. But they also trusted His sovereignty. You remember the, 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 the theme of Daniel? God is in control. Nobody is going to stand faced with the fiery furnace if they do not believe that their God is in control. They have trust in this moment that no matter what happens, God's ways are better than my ways. His plans are greater than my plans. And I'm going to trust Him. And they also put their trust in God's power to protect. They put their trust in God's power to protect. Church, is that our answer today? There's people that I'm sure have been called to go on different trips all over the world for missions. And they can become fearful. I don't know if I need to go. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? But God's saying, trust me to protect you. If he's calling you to go, he's going to be your provider. These three men are in the heart of Babylon standing up against probably the, 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 the strongest leader the world has known at this point. And God protects them. Church, too often we begin to start thinking in our own mind, and our own ideas, and we start thinking, well, maybe I don't need to do that, or maybe I don't need to go here. God's saying that if He's calling you to go and to take the gospel in Babylon, He is going to be your protector, and His ways are perfect. But let me tell you, Babylon is not across, just across the ocean. It's also right here. Every day, church. Every day we're called to go and to share the truth of the gospel in our city. God is sovereign. God has and will protect each of you. We will not bow to anything else. Will we follow him alone? Will we take the gospel to the world, not being afraid of what the world can do to us? which is what we will discuss next week when we get there. But here's the beauty of this. John, 1 John chapter 4, 19. We've been in this on, on Wednesday nights. And it says this, We love because He first loved us. And then it goes on in that passage and it says that perfect love does what? Cast out fear. Church, when we get overwhelmed by the love of God, of what He did for you and for me, that He would send His Son to die on the cross so that we may have life, if we can trust God for our salvation, then we can trust Him for our everyday life. Church, too often we say, God, I want you to trust me. I want to trust you with my salvation so I can get to heaven. But I don't know if I can trust you in all these other aspects. When we get overwhelmed by His love, the fear of what the world can do to us starts to fade away. It starts to fade away because we recognize that God is sovereign. We recognize that he has the power to protect us and he does protect us because even if we breathe our last breath, he's protected us by sending his son Jesus to take our place on the cross. So that when we stand before him, we will be with him for all eternity and we can say this, that we gained. We gained. For me to live as Christ... 
to die is gain. So church, what's your response? Do we have idols in our life that are constantly calling us to sacrifice to? Are there things in our life that we have put before the holiness of God? Nothing has the worth that God does. He is infinitely worthy. Have you determined in your heart to follow God no matter the cost and to begin to dismantle the little idols in our life? Have you removed the pride of thinking that we have and know what's best in our own opinions and our own thoughts and humbled ourselves before God and trusted His sovereignty and trusted His power to protect Even Paul, excuse me, even Peter, we see when he goes to prison, and Paul, when he goes to prison, they sit there and they're singing worship songs. Why? Because God's sovereign. God protects. God is taking care of and has put them in a place for a purpose. We see it all throughout the Old and New Testament. Do you truly believe today that God is in control? Will you follow him with your whole heart?